They said it wouldn't last, and they said that you can't drive profitable and incremental revenue through the affiliate channel. But here we are, 20 years later, and the affiliate channel is alive and kicking and generating profitable revenue for thousands of retailers across the globe. Hi, I am Jamie Birch, your host of the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast, where we talk to some of the industry's best and brightest about their careers, about leadership, and about how to drive profitable revenue through the affiliate channel. Oh man, this is one of my favorite podcasts to uh, record. I'm so excited to uh, share with you guys my conversation with uh, Steve Denton. Uh, Right before I go, or we get started into that introduction, what I do want to say is uh, right now, there's a lot of turbulence, a lot of challenge, a lot of change going on. And you're probably, if you're an advertiser, you're probably trying to figure out exactly what to do. Well, at JEB Commerce, we created a 19 and, and we threw in one bonus uh, from our friends uh, into a guide. So 20 tactics for affiliate marketing to help you survive and thrive. So you can go download that at jebcommerce.com slash strategies. And you'll get access to our PDF right away. It's free. And it includes uh, 19 different strategies and tactics, plus one bonus uh, uh, strategy to help you not only just kind of tread water and survive, but also thrive in this current uh, challenging economic environment. And it seems to change every day. So right now, getting a good foundation, getting those strategies in place is really important. So please go download that along with the PDF. You actually get 19 different videos uh, delivered via email. So in those videos, we talk about each step uh, a little uh, in more detail uh, for you. And if you ever need help, uh, just uh, email us at gethelp at jbcommerce.com. So let's move on to our guest today is uh, Steve Denton. Uh, Steve and I have known each other for 20 years. Um pretty much since the start of my career. Uh, He has been a leader at FedEx, at Linkshare, uh, and was there when the company was acquired by Rakuten and is now at wheretogo.com. And man, we cover so much. I was so excited uh, to talk to Steve um, just because of his... uh, I'm always trying to be a better leader, and he is probably one of the best, uh, not only in our industry, but I would say one of the best. He has a, a large wake of incredible people that he mentored behind him uh, that uh, many of them we will be interviewing or have interviewed already on this podcast. So really, we dive into a bunch of leadership stuff, and I took I took five pages of notes while, I was record- while we were talking. Um, we talk about how it's important in times like this uh, within your company to build, uh, you know, the social connections and how that's important to culture. Um, We talk about uh, one of the really cool things that they do uh, in a remote environment um, is they do a show and tell. So we talk about what what that is and how it um, it's just awesome. Um, We also talk about the importance of your first boss. Uh, and and taking the job no one else wants. Um, right now, looking at seeds versus distractions. And then being mindful of what you need to say yes to, but also being really mindful of what you need to say no to. Um, gosh, there was so much in here. Um, I'm looking through my notes. Uh, it's important for leaders to show the why of what they're doing right now. Be transparent. Um, we talked about uh, one of the best things that he said was 
our environment now isn't a winner takes all. It's an it takes all to win. Really profound at the end. And he shares a great story <laughs> in about uh, his journey in affiliate marketing. Uh, I was fortunate to to be real kind of close by on that. So definitely stick around uh, till the end um, to hear about that. But we talk about then we get into performance marketing. So uh, we talk about. Um, his experience both within uh, two different networks, being either CEO or president of major affiliate networks, and also working on the advertiser side, and what he saw uh, about the orders that got commissioned and that didn't get commissioned. So he has really good insight into uh, what goes on with the affiliate channel from both sides of the fence. So I think this would be really helpful for advertisers who really want to know what the affiliate program does and if they're skeptical uh, at all. But we talk about the value. We talk about some really great ideas on how affiliates uh, can leverage their value um, and how affiliate managers uh, can interact with inventory controllers and merchandisers within their company uh, to really drive incremental revenue for their clients. So we dive deep into some performance marketing, share some stories. We have some laughs. Uh, it was uh, by far one of my favorite hours of, of this week. Um, and, you know, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, it was a great, uh, great hour and 10 minutes. And yeah, let's just dive into the conversation right now. All right. I am so excited. Uh, thank you so much, Steve, for uh, being on this podcast. Um, welcome to the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. Thank you, Jamie. I'm excited to be here and excited to talk to you today. It's been a while. And um, I remember when we met almost 20 years ago. So it's, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to a keen conversation today. Now, do you remember our one and only golf game together? I do remember. We. Uh, it was, well... <laughs> It was it was one of my uh, trips to Sandpoint, Idaho, um, and uh, it was uh, yeah, you, Coldwater Creek where you were working. You were working, I think, for Christine Lazay at the time, and oh, wow. uh, you guys were a client, and you were a fresh faced, uh, young, up and coming affiliate marketer, and uh, and you guys were having a golf tournament there to support. I mean, Coldwater Creek was such a great sponsor and um, provided great stewardship for the for the sandpoint community and you guys had a golf tournament every year that raised money i think for the local hospital or the local school system and um and we were excited to participate in that i think it's the first time i ever saw a moose on a golf course and um and it was and i think it's when i got introduced to coffee huts in parking lots of gas stations. So yeah, we had a great, great trip out there. Great, great area of the country. Yeah, I believe I lost more than one ball per hole that day uh, at Hidden Lakes. Yes. Uh, that I lost a ton of balls. And do you, re do you remember who we golf with? Uh, and often having to leave them behind because they were searching for uh, balls in the woods. So I think I've blocked that from my memory. I think I've blocked that out. Um, but I do remember we were not playing with the most talented golfers on the planet. Uh, as such, we did not win, but we had a great day. We, we had did. a great time. So all yeah. good. Uh, you know, I always appreciated that. We have known each other for, I, I was thinking back today, um, since really the beginning of, of my career in this space. And so that's one of the reasons I was super excited that you agreed to be on here because 
we've known each other for so long. You've had some pretty amazing positions uh, within the industry and outside of it. And to just get a chance to talk to you about you know your career and leadership and those kind of things, I've had the benefit of learning from you um, for especially those first uh, four or five years of of my career. Uh, and and I'm much better for it. And I thank you for you know you've always been. Uh, open and, and willing to spend time with just about anyone looking to looking to grow and and improve themselves. Well, you, that's kind. You're you're welcome. It's uh, um, it's easy to do good things for good people. So it's always uh, always a pleasure. So uh, we had to start a little late. You you had uh, you got tested for COVID today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did. Yeah, I um <laughs> I did. I'm down in Atlanta, Georgia now, and uh, it two weekends ago, you know, my family's in town and, um, it's rare, right? When you have college age kids, it's rare that, uh, you get to spend this much time with them because, you know, they're off doing their thing. And, yeah. um, and we had been quarantined for about three months and, uh, we took a trip to, uh, Hilton head and, um, and, you know, South Carolina, uh, God bless them, right? Great people down there, but, um, came back just out of an abundance of caution and went and, and did uh, one of the drive-through COVID testings today. There's a bunch of them here. And uh, have you done it yet? I haven't. I was going to, uh, I, I, I operate another company and there was a positive in that company. And so yeah. I went to go get tested and there was no, you know, I didn't fit the criteria. Yeah. And uh, now there is a line, uh, my office is real close to the hospital. Uh, last I heard on Facebook, there are 400 cars lined up and pretty much everywhere around me is a parking lot waiting to get tested. Yeah. And it's a pretty quick test. I mean, they put that swab up your nose. It goes in there pretty deep. Like your, your eyes. I are heard right water. to the, yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah, to the I, back of your head. Yeah. Your eyes are going to water, right? I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's an eye watering moment, but, um, but certainly, you know, not to make light of it, uh, you know, necessary and certainly, uh, you know, we're, we're fighting this thing and, um, I just felt like it was something I needed to do, but, uh, feeling, feeling good, just, uh, out of an abundance of caution for, for my team, my family and, and the folks that I see on a regular basis. Yeah, no, I can totally understand that. We, we, uh, we, we take, we kind of go above and beyond what our health, uh, providers and department here in Idaho tell us. Um, generally though, you've, you've, uh, you know, you locked down, uh, I watched your videos, but you know, how, how did you respond to, to this pandemic personally? Uh, well, I mean, personally, right. I mean, as a parent, right. We, we, I, we talk a little bit about it later, but you know, I took my new role here at where to go, um, <clears throat> in February and, uh, we moved across country in March. So you're moving from, cause we were living in California at the time mm -hmm. and, um, and both my, my, my kids go to college out there. So, you know, moving in the middle of it was challenging. Um, uh, and, and I feel terrible for my wife because, you know, she came here with me and you know, things have been kind of shut down since she got here. And, um, you know, I have work, right. I have, you know, mm -hmm. new company to run and things like that to keep me busy, but, but I feel bad for her. So, so Jamie, I, when we got our new place, I, I, you know, we didn't bring any of her furniture out here except for a couple of pieces. And, and I was like, Hey, my wife's a designer. I was like, here, you, you here's an empty pallet, right? Like, yeah. like create, do your magic. And, um, and she did, but everything's on back order. So essentially, I mean, we're sitting on like porch furniture, right. From, from, from our, <laughs> from our house in New Jersey, you know, like two homes ago that we liked a lot and that's, what's in our living room, but we're look, first world problems. We're, we're getting through right, it. Right. Um, you know, I think, 
I think the thing that's more interesting um, is, you know, our company here, and we'll talk about it later, but, you know, we're a two-year-old company and, and, and we're headquartered here in, in Buckhead, Georgia, which is, it's part of Atlanta. And, you know, as a two-year-old company, you know, we've got about 120 employees. The majority of our employees have been with us a year. Um, and when you think about the social connections to those employees, they can absolutely do the work remote, right? The team's been thriving remote. They can operate remote, you know, delivering on the milestones from a remote standpoint. It's the social connections that we've had to work really hard on because they, we walked out the door on March 12th and, and, you know, here we are on June 30th and, and, um, and in no hurry to get back to the office. So, uh, so I think that's the thing that's been the hardest thing to manage, not the work, but the social connections to the company. Cause you know, they don't have five, six, seven years of company experience with us to lean on. And um, so how do you maintain those social connections? I mean, shoot, Jamie, we've, we've hired 22 people since we walked out the door. So the onboarding oh, wow. experience, I mean, and everything's done via video. So, you know, I make light of it, but I'm not even convinced half these people own pants. Because I haven't seen them, you know, <laughs> below, you know, top three buttons of whatever shirt they're wearing, you know, in, yeah, yeah, you know, for four months. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been, it's been interesting, but it's made us better. And I, I'd be willing to bet it's made a lot of companies better. It's forced you to communicate more effectively. It's forced you to mm-hmm. really prioritize because you don't get those drive-bys, right? You don't get those yeah, drive-bys yeah. at the desk, like, hey, Jamie, you got five minutes, or. Hey Jamie, can I check in on that? Like everything's purposeful. You lose some stuff with that, but mm-hmm. but um, I think it prepares a company that's growing for the eventuality that you are going to ultimately have to lead people that do not sit in the same location where you sit, and yeah. this forces you to get better at that. So, long answer to a short question, right? Like, how are we doing? We're doing great. Thanks for asking. Um, and it's been quite a leadership challenge, but but. I've seen a lot over my career that's prepared us for that. And, um, and it's good to be able to lean on it. Yeah. I have so much in there. I want to ask about, you, you know, we went remote, uh, almost on the same day. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, all of our work I've always said, and, and, and I'm sure you agree laptop and a cell phone is all I need. I can, we can do our work from anywhere, but most of my team has been with me for five to seven years. And so we've worked yeah. in the same building for that period of time. I never thought that there was, you know, something to think about is how they, the, uh, how much time your team has spent together. So one of, you know, we've done a couple things to kind of keep that drive by going. One of them is we, we have twice weekly stand up meetings, 15 minutes. We ask a few questions, we all talk. Um, and then we do, uh, uh, my director of affiliate services and I host a off open office hours twice a week where mm-hmm. anyone can come and ask anything. And then we do like a happy hour, uh, you know, once or twice a month. And that, See, it's it's worked, but it's not the same. What with the youth of your organization, uh, what have you guys instituted to kind of how are you fostering that culture and that relationship? So it's changed quite a bit, right? Um, and when we first went out, a lot of fear. Not that there isn't a lot of fear today, but <clears throat> you know, really had to manage fear, right, of the unknown. And and I think Governor Cuomo in New York, right, were really handled a lot of his, his, a lot of the challenges of New York state. Well, and, you know, Mm -hmm. he said something he said, and I, and he said, people are afraid when they either don't trust the information they're getting 
or they don't trust the person they're getting it from, or they're not getting the information they need. Or finally, the information is just damn frightening, right? Now, you can't control the last part of that as a leader, right? None of yeah. you can't control that. But you sure can control the first three, you know? So um, we spent a lot, of, a lot of the same things I'm sure you do, right? Over-communicating, mm-hmm. being, trying to be in front of it as, you, as, you, as much as you can, really wrapping up the velocity on, on all hands meetings so that people feel connected to the company, showcasing other people in the organization, not just the leadership team, right? So showcasing that director level or that manager level or that individual contributor level through snippets at all hands meetings so that people stay connected, um, trying to find fun things to do, right? As, as someone in his 50s, I don't know that my idea of fun is going to map to what a 26 or 27-year-old thinks is fun. But, you know, we try to do a fun event every week, whether it's like family feud and they get on families or, or you know, we had a, you know, sh- you know I'll tell you one that's been really insightful um, is show and tell. We've actually, every other week, we, we, um, there are like eight to nine employees that will take um, uh, two to four minutes on a Zoom to bring us into their life. And I've seen employees showcase aquarium collections. Oh, wow. um, I've seen, I've seen um, uh, a Disney collection of like Mickey's <laughs> um, coin collections. Uh, it just, and it gives you, it's, it's not something you'd usually see, right? As at an organizational level, like maybe they're close colleagues, but it's really been eye opening and insightful. And I think it's probably been the most popular thing we've done, which is if people are, okay disclosing, like you got to sign up for it. You don't get volunteered for it, but getting an insight into, you know, what an employee or what a team member wants to show you, um, while they're at home. And, uh, so those have been popular, but just trying to stay ahead of it, over communicate. And then the last thing is just, you know, we're really mindful about <clears throat> our number one priority is our health, the health and safety and well-being of our employees, um, and, and our partners. So no rush, Right, like if someone's not comfortable, you know, the, the the office is open and it's safe for those that want to come in, but it's completely optional. Because oh, if yeah. you think about it, Jamie, I don't know what you were like when you were 24, 25, but I was not set up to work remote, right? right. Like I maybe yeah. could have done it for a couple of days, but like I didn't have a desk or even a decent chair. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I don't think when people walked out the door on March 12th, you know, they thought they were going to be out for four months. So some of them were working from couches, right. Or yeah. sitting at their, like on a bar stool at their kitchen counter. And, you know, that is going to drag on. So we've looked for ways that we can, you know, make their work from home experience better for them. So lots of things to do. You know, at 24, I had pallet furniture before it was cool. It was just sure, pallets. <laughs> yeah, you were like you were like early stage IKEA. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, and we did the same thing. We opened the office, but purely volunteer voluntarily uh, through the end of the year. Uh, and like you said, what what we found is the younger uh, group and and being you know mid forties, I I wouldn't even thought about it, but they really wanted the option. You know, you have roommates at that age, and yeah. that may not. So that's that's awesome. Well, we haven't really introduced you yet, so sure. why don't you share a little bit about? Uh, I know you from uh, LinkShare on, but t- for the people who don't know you, and it's probably few, you've been in the industry for so long in some really prominent positions and done some amazing things. But give a little background of of uh, of your your career and who you are. So it's hard, right? Because the older you get, the story gets longer, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, older guys have longer stories. Um, uh, 
So, um, so I would say to, to chunk it up, I would, I would break it out this way. Small town guy from a small town in West Virginia went to a small state school in West Virginia called Shepherd College, which is now a university. Very fortunate that my first job out of college, I worked for Pepsi-Cola. And even more fortunate was my first boss. It was a guy named Chris Furman. And Chris was, I think, 27 at the time. And he was from Philly. And I'm 22. And, and, and I, you know, we're down in Virginia Beach, Virginia, because that's where I got my job. And Chris was talented, Jamie. I mean, Chris went on to become the president of Pepsi-Cola. And now oh, he's wow. the CEO of Ventura Foods out in uh, Ventura, California. And for me, I was really fortunate because I got to work for a great boss as my first boss. And <clears throat> before we started using terms like, let me show you what good looks like, I got to see what great looked like as a 22-year-old. So I worked for Chris and, 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 and had a career at Pepsi for about four years. I ended up on this thing called Franchise Acquisition Company. Pepsi was buying out a lot of franchisees. Um, Pepsi's way was to send a, a district manager um, into these, these acquisitions and, and help integrate. But it, it was a tough role. I moved around quite a bit. Um, the thing I'll tell you about buying franchisees is the guy who or gal who owned the franchise that sold it, they're gone, very happy. Um, the folks left behind, maybe not as thrilled. So, um, but that was a great learning experience. Um, and uh, and uh, I just moved around quite a bit. Um, and I got an opportunity <clears throat> with this company called RPS, which is now known as FedEx Ground. But RPS was a direct competitor to UPS and it covered like 40% of the United States. And I had never really been in a sales role before. I, when I went to Pepsi, I really went right into management after spending about six months in stores. And, and I really wanted to be in sales. And, um, and they had a, a, a position for a sales professional in Baltimore, Maryland. And, and, and a friend of mine from college was a ops manager there. So I took the job there at RPS and, and just really got an opportunity when you're selling small packaging or parcel shipping, you get an opportunity to first opportunity for me to really see how business worked. I mean, I had clients from like, like random house that was, you know, I wasn't learning how business worked. I just saw how a bunch of books got shipped too. You know, I had a guy <clears throat> who basically made margarita mix in his garage and, um, and, and he, he would ship 25 of these things out a day, but like I got to see these entrepreneurs work and, and, um, and I really gained an appreciation for, early on supply chain having an impact on business and, and, and how important that was. Um, worked my way through the ranks at, at, at RPS, you know, rep, area manager, district manager, took a job, regional sales manager job in New York. Um, first lesson I learned there was take the job. If you're in a big company, take the job nobody else wants. Because frankly, if you can take the job nobody else wants and you can succeed at that, like you set yourself up for the next three steps. So New York had been struggling. I went up there. I was, you know, uh, Dana, who's my wife, uh, she was my fiance at the time. She, I think she talked me into it. Um, so we went up there and, <laughs> um, and you know what? We surrounded ourselves with really good people. Uh, we made some good steps. We won region of the year. FedEx bought us. Timing was great because I just won region of the year with my team. I got the opportunity to become a director of sales and I was the director of sales for the Northeast for FedEx. And, um, at the age of about 33, 32, 33. And, and, and I think I would have been very content staying there for, you know, the rest of my life. Um, but I met these two entrepreneurs, uh, Stephen and Heidi Messer. 
And mm-hmm. I mean, Jamie, when I met them, I mean, I mean, Stephen might have been 25, 24. Right? I mean, I was 32. You know, Heidi, I think, with my view, like 28. But they told me about this amazing business that <clears throat> they had built. And it was infant, right? It was early stage. Like this was 1999. And, but it was a commission based sales course online was the easiest way to explain it. And, um, and in 1999, that was pretty unique, right? Because in 1999 on the internet, you know, you had two types of media buys, none and what was called a portal buy. And that's when you were spending a ton of money on like AOL to like yeah. buy homepages. And, and your measurement, your measurement was, you know, maybe impression count, hits, audience, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and it was expensive. <laughs> and this just made a ton of sense to me. Um, this commission-based model. And and look, running sales for FedEx for the Northeast, it wasn't lost on me how many packages that we were shipping that were converting to residential and coming from these emerging, you know, internet companies, right? So, you know, I never thought of that. That had to be a really unique uh, time to be there to see the shipping change. It was, it was huge. And you know what? I had always aspired to be an entrepreneur. I never had the guts to do it. Um, and uh, I was so enamored with Stephen and Heidi and the business model. And I thought they were special people. I mean, you meet, you know, when you meet special people, I knew they were yeah, special yeah. people and they needed a VP of sales. And, um, and candidly, you know, truth be told, I was in New York city. Um, I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old and um, I wasn't going to do it. And my wife was like, Stephen, you're in New York. You've got a great resume this is an opportunity to get involved in the internet. And if it doesn't work out, you got a good resume, you'll get another job. And, and so I left my I left my director job at FedEx to go to this, <laughs> this internet company that, you know, it, it maybe secured, you know, a couple million dollars in funding. And and it wasn't without turbulence. I mean, 2000 hits, the internet blows up in a bad way, right? Yeah, our biggest, oh, yeah. oh my God, Jamie, our biggest customer. I wish I could remember the name. It was it, our biggest affiliate was this affiliate in Long Island. And essentially the whole deal was this. You would buy a blender, right? Or some household item through them and you would pay full price. And then you would, you would, you would send in some sort of voucher in 60 days and they would give you your money. And the whole model was based on breakage, right? So like if oh, yeah, yeah. 15% of the people never redeemed this place was, and this affiliate in 2000, I mean, we're sending these guys checks like 400 grand a month. I mean, they were huge. So they, things are blowing up in a bad way. The market's going south and, and we hadn't raised our, our round yet and the public markets weren't viable and, and we had staffed up to go public. And it was just like we had, you know, and everybody was struggling with it. All the providers were. Um, yeah, I was in Seattle at the yeah. time, and the uh, the dot com parties turned to pink slip parties. Yeah. It was awful. Yeah, so we had to make some hard decisions and say goodbye to some 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 talented folks in order to just make payroll. Um, mm-hmm. But but we we gutted it out, and and and, and you know I, I, we had offers to sell the company. Stephen Messer had an offer to sell the company for to one of the other networks, which was public at the time, and. Um, and he turned him down and, and, and it was, it was some, some call, right? He had that much belief in the business that we would get through it. And I learned a lot from him. I mean, cause it would have been an easy way out. Um, mm-hmm. but it was not a good amount of money. Um, but he believed in the business. Heidi believed in the business. We had a leadership team that was there. And, um, 
and we pounded through it and we made like $16 profit in June of 2000 and we never looked back. And then, you know, we sold it to Rakuten. I got that opportunity after that to become the president of Rakuten USA and, and really run LinkShare and, and, and work with some amazing folks. Um, and then yeah, I know this is a long story. I'm sorry, but um, no, I love it. I love it. I've got, I've a question for you. Yeah. Do you ever? I look back on when I left Coldwater Creek. I was yeah. a single dad, uh, you know, pretty much on my own, and decided to seemingly risk everything and start an agency and have to. I only eat what I kill, so sure. to speak. Yeah. And I look back, going, I don't have the courage, how do I have the courage to do that? Do you look at that move and go, I don't know how I did that. It was, I don't, it was my wife. I mean, I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old. I mean, I mean, I'm not over the the director job at FedEx was, I mean, I was the youngest one by 20 years in the company. I mean, I had three offices. I had a secretary, I had an office with a bathroom. Right. And then I go to the early stage company (laughs) and I'm I'm sharing an office with like two other people. Right. And we're working off the door (laughs) from Home Depot that's sitting on top of two filing cabinets. Right. Um, yeah. I, I always say to people like, do the things in your twenties that you won't want to do in your thirties, do the things in your thirties that you don't want to do in your forties and do the things in your forties you won't want to do in your fifties. Um, it was my wife. My wife talked me into, you got to have a good partner. I mean, if you don't have a good partner, yeah, yeah. it's going to be hard road. And I'm sure you had good people supporting you and, oh, and, yeah. and, and doing that. So, you know, the link share thing was great. I met some amazing folks, uh, had an amazing team. I look at the team we had at, at link share, whether it was Kelly Boer, who went on to do amazing things over at retail me not, or Leanne Dietrich mm-hmm. or Reggie rash, who was our GC or Adam Weiss, who's a figurehead yep. or, or, I mean, I'm, I don't want to leave people out, but um, an amazing group of, of, of people and team and talent there that have done so well. And I'm really proud of that leadership tree that we had. Um, I finished up LinkShare around 08. I just, we had integrated into Rakuten. I think the next step for me would have probably gone to Japan. Um, Rakuten was making some acquisitions. And I, candidly, after eight years, I was just done. And um, so I took a couple years off. Um, help some comp- some buddies of mine start some businesses. And um, <clears throat> Michael Rubin, who was the CEO of GSI, um, GSI was a big client of mine at LinkShare's, uh, LinkShare, and I worked really hard with my team to secure them as a client. They were like a good client, you know, back in, in, the, in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael wanted to build a media business. And he said, Steve, would you come build GSI Media? And he goes, I got an affiliate network I bought. It's called Pepper Jam. I was like, Pepper Jam? What? And then, um, and then he had he had fetch back. He had bought a retargeting company, um, and and, th- and those those two things together made a lot of sense. So um, I had a great time. Went there. We had an opera. We 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 work with some great folks. Um, we 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 leverage those assets to really get a footprint in performance based marketing. Because now you know the the industry evolved, right? I mean, the industry had moved so much. I mean, when I got involved in it. I mean, CPC didn't even exist, right? Google yeah, wasn't a yeah. thing, right? Um, and uh, and you saw these models come along and you saw retargeting becoming really, really important um, in yeah. the late 2000s. So we were able to do some really fascinating things there and, and uh, eBay bought us. So when eBay acquisition, I got an opportunity then to run what's called eBay Enterprise Marketing Solutions. So we integrated in a whole bunch of companies like our agencies and our email marketing company and things like that. And um, even got an opportunity uh, at that point to to, to look after Magento. Um, so really fascinating time and probably would have stayed there a long time. Um, 
But when eBay decided to take PayPal public, they also decided to spin off those assets. So, um, so we sold those companies, um, and uh, and that was that was uh, tough, right? Because you spend a lot of time building. It's a tough time to chop them up. Yep. Uh, but really good, talented people there, and 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 many of them doing really really well. Um, and then I decided I was going to get out of the internet for a while. I'd been there twenty years. It was time to do something different. And Stephen and Heidi had been working on uh, AI company called Collective Eye for sales teams. It was it was really amazing. It, it is really amazing artificial intelligence for sales teams. So it was time to take it to market. Um, I had non competes, uh, sat on some boards, um, so I wanted to go in another industry and learn something different. So spent a couple of years with Stephen and Heidi taking Collective Eye to market, and uh, that that company is going to be great, and they're doing great things. And, um, and then where to go came my way and, you know, Jamie, it was going to take something really special, um, to get Dan and I out of Santa Barbara where we were living. Oh yeah. And, um, I bet. and Santa Barbara go- is beautiful for one yeah, thing. Santa Barbara does not suck. Um, <laughs> when, when I, when I was, when I lived there for a year and a half, two years, I realized why everybody would go to CJU. I was like, this place is pretty freaking awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, like this place is awesome, like in every aspect of the word. Um, but, um, but where to go is a special opportunity. It's, it's, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit later, but, you know, combine all the things that I cared about. It was, it's a platform that's network based. It's a platform that helps mid to small size companies compete at the enterprise level without investing a ton of resources. Um, it, 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 it just, it, it spoke to everything I wanted to do at this stage in my life from purpose standpoint. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think the business model is incredible. Um, got great investors. UPS owns 93% of the company. And um, so great investors, right? Great leadership team and, and a business model that, that is disruptive. But more importantly, at this stage of my career, I'm passionate about. So, so here we are in Atlanta at where to go. So there's, there's a long story that took me, you know, 30 some years to navigate with a lot of amazing people and, um, and, and some great experiences. And I feel very blessed and fortunate to have been able to do that with, with some great folks. Man, that's, that's awesome. And I definitely, uh, towards the end, want to talk about, uh, moving from success to significance and, and how, where to go fits in with that. Uh, but I'm sitting here with someone that I consider sort of like, uh, you know, the Bill Walsh, where a lot of people came through your program and you have leaders everywhere. I, I talked mm-hmm. to Adam Weiss. He's on the podcast, our, our first episode. And, and, and uh, I feel like I've learned so much from you. And right now we're going th- and you've led, you know, very large teams in, in some pretty dynamic uh, and startup organizations, uh, you know, logistic companies, all these different areas. You've led a lot of people. So I have you here. We're in a pretty turbulent time, even between when you and I talked to prep for this call and now, uh, things have continued to dramatically change. Um, wh- what do you look at? What are the keys to, to leading a team and maybe even leading yourself, but also leading the team and your companies uh, through uncertainty and turbulence and, uh, you know, We've never quite experienced anything that's going on, you know, this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are the what are the learnings? What are the keys? What advice do you have for that, you know, for that group coming up behind you? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like in my career, I've seen not anything like this pandemic, but you know, I've definitely seen two recessions. I've seen stock market crashes. I've seen 
I mean, definitely, you know, you work for 30, 30 some years, you're going to see, see a couple things, right? Good times <laughs> and bad. Um, you know, a couple of things I would say. Number one, um, you know, Warren Buffett says this, right? When the tide's out, you can see who's swimming naked. Um, it's a great saying, right? Because a lot of people, you know, when the t- high tide hides all boats, I mean, hides all stumps, that's yeah. the quote, right? Um, so really focusing on, you know, the core things that that your business delivers value with, right? Like, so as a business, what are your core value drivers? You know, are you a vendor to your clients or are you a partner, right? Because if you're a vendor, you answer the question, what have you done for me lately? And that's table stakes, right? Partner has yep. to answer the question, what are you going to do for me next? And really focusing on, you know, you can't be distracted. You got to differentiate between seeds for growth and distractions. You got to be as mindful about the things that you're not going to do as the things that you are going to do. Because look, as an entrepreneur or business leader, you're looking to say yes, right? I think that's a big misunderstanding that people have. It's like, oh, my boss, she just wants to say no, or she just wants to say no, no. No, like a a leader's looking to say yes, right? Because when you say yes, things happen. When you say no, nothing happens, right? So you're looking for reasons to say yes, but you got to be really mindful about the things that you say yes to. And you got to be really mindful about the things you say no to. And the folks in the organization who can articulate that, the folks in the organization who will take the time and the energy and the effort to, to, to advocate for the things that need to get done based on you know a business case versus just based on gut or fear. I mean, that's those are the things that are tough during these days, right? Because you've got fear mm-hmm. ruling a lot. So you really got to go back to what are your core foundational things that you do well? What are the problems that you solve for your clients? And take on those hard... I tell young people all the time, do the job nobody wants to do. Take the hard job. Because if you can get the hard stuff right, man, the easy stuff just gets really easy, right? So get yep. the hard stuff right and be mindful about it. And then ultimately, right, it's, it's people are looking to say yes. So, so find a way to that. And, and, but you got to do the homework. Um, you know, lots to, you know, payrolls normally here your biggest expense. So you got to be mindful of your hiring, but more importantly, you got to be mindful of your talent. And, you know, when you're running a company of 50 people or 40 people or 20 people or 120 people, like there's no place to hide. And, you know, is everybody there contributing? Are they contributing at the level that personally and professionally rewards them? And at the same time, are they contributing at a level that's making your company better? Because you shouldn't be staffing for the company you are today. You should be staffing for the company you're going to be two years from now. And are you hiring talent that can get you there? Because if you're not, then then you should be dragging folks along. So I've always looked for those folks, right? Which is why I'm really proud of our leadership tree um, through those organizations. And so we've always focused on talent that made us better. And it didn't always look and sound like us, right? They challenged us. They, 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 they made us better. They asked the hard questions. Like I always say, look, when you interview somebody, that's the best it's going to be. So if their interview is bad, True. like, like that's like best time to fire somebody is before you hire somebody. And, yeah. um, and, and what you're going to see in the interview is that's, that's what you're going to get. So if, if, if that's not what you want, don't try to talk yourself into it. Um, 
spend the time to get the right folks because so, they're the ones who are going to make you better. Yeah. You know, I think that's probably the biggest mistake I made over and over again, maybe in the first uh, decade of running this business is hiring incorrectly and then looking for leadership concepts to fix uh, a bad hire. Um, and, and I think you and I talked before about that's really the first step in, in, in managing through this change is well before this stuff happens. You've got to have the right team on board uh, to be able to do that. Yeah. And if people are leaving carnage on the side of the road, like those are the hard ones, right? Those folks that get stuff done, but the carnage is just, is insurmountable. And then it's just, it's toxic, right? I, it's funny. <laughs> if anyone was bold enough and they take on a new CEO job or president job or whatever, exact, whatever job you take and you meet with your team for the first time and you say, hey, who's the biggest a-hole in the company? I assure <laughs> you, 90% of the people are going to give you the same answer. And, yeah, and yeah. that is probably a high-performing, toxic individual in your organization. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've always done the sort of the quarterly review of would we hire this person again? That's great. And great practice, yeah. if if we wouldn't say definitively yes, then we move to uh, either put them in a performance improvement plan uh, or just remove them entirely. Because if you don't want to hire them again, why would you? Why would you keep them? Now, what do you think employees need from their leader right. in in times like this? You need you need a leader who shows up. Right, you got to have a leader who's who's going to stand up and show up, um, and lead lead from the front, um, over communicate, be very decisive and clear about what we're doing, and most importantly, why. Competent people want to know why. It's you know, competent people want to know the why, not just the what or the how. It's why, right? It's why. It's why you work at a smaller company because you get access to people that might be three to four levels above you in a bigger company. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's that exposure. It's why you would look work for a smaller company. So the why is really important. So not just communicating the what and the how, but why are we doing this and why, and also why it matters to you and the company and our customers and our industry that always holds true whether you're in a pandemic or you know you're you're in the go-go economy that we you know before this pandemic you know we had decade of fantastic growth yeah we did right and and it was just as important then because talent has an opportunity to go to a lot of places right and um so that's that's i think people will look for that and then certainly right now right like you need to be really mindful then your employees have to understand and you can't fake this like their safety and security and well-being has got to be top of mind for you. And if, if, if your actions yeah. aren't aligned with that or your say-do ratio is low, like I always like to talk about a say-do ratio, mm. right? If your say-do like ratio is low, then you have no credibility. So you have to maintain a high say-do ratio constantly. And, and that is under a lot of scrutiny. And, 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 and that, that's a place where you, know, you have to spend a lot of time. And I, I think, look, I think good people want to work for good people. They do. Like, good people want to work for mm -hmm. good people. And my career at big companies, man, I work for some terrible people. But I always knew if I stayed long enough, you know, they get fired or get transferred. So I could just like <laughs> outlast them. But in a small company, that's kind of tough, right? Yeah, um, much harder. Just, 
Yeah, especially you got founders or people that are part of the founding team, right? So, so, so good people want to work for good people. They want to work for people that are going to make them better, right? Either are you going to make me better? Are you going to help me make more money? Or are you going to get obstacles out of my way? If you can't do any of those three things, I don't know why I'm working for you. And then the last thing is, you know, am I doing work that I find interesting and purposeful? And purposeful, you might get to a little bit later on in your career, but do I find it interesting? And because if the work is interesting and I feel like what I do matters and my boss shows me how what I do matters to the company and to our clients, or if you're serving internal customers, um, but connecting those dots is something that really good leaders do is connecting the dots for these, 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 these talented team members as to why it matters. And and because if I can see why it matters, then I know what my I know my purpose, and 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 I and and I'll put that effort in. But you know, it's like you, we've all cranked out reports in our career before that take like hours, and you just wonder like, did anybody even read this? Definitely. Well, that tremendous. I have already written down three pages of notes from this. Um, let's move on to uh, well, performance marketing. Yeah. Uh, you've you've worked at two uh, major affiliate networks. You've been inside uh, as an advertiser, so you have a really unique view of uh, of affiliate marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, what's like the biggest lesson that? that you've learned that only someone who's been in all those different positions on the different sides of, of the fence, so to speak, sure. uh, you know, has learned about affiliates. Yeah. Yeah. I feel fortunate on a lens, right? I mean, I've either been the president or a CEO of two affiliate major networks and seen both of them go from, you know, sub $10 million in revenue to over 50 and we'll just leave it at that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I feel like, being there early, I got a chance to see a lot and, and what caused people pain early on, how it's just given now. Um, but you know, the thing that, and I love, I love the affiliate industry or performance marketing industry. Um, I love that industry for a couple of reasons. Number one, it gives entrepreneurs an opportunity to build a business, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it gives small, entrepreneurs, not small, but like smaller size companies, an opportunity to participate in this economy and, 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 and win. And doing it through a performance-based model gives you an opportunity to work with advertisers that you may never get an opportunity to work with on the way up, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I love the leveling effect of that. But the thing I love the most is the fact that when you have a model right? As a, as a publisher or, or an affiliate, when you have a model and you have an audience and you understand your value to the advertiser, it's amazing what you can do. And it's amazing, you know, how much, how much revenue you can drive for those the advertisers and how much revenue you can drive for yourself. And, 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 and to me, it's just the purest form of, of capitalism. I mean, it's just, you know, there's no boundaries. You have different budgets, but, but you, have the ability to go compete and win. And, and, and you've definitely seen over time, I mean, the networks have done well, right? The networks have certainly had outcomes and done well, but man, when you look at some of these outcomes for some of these publishers, I mean, you look at Ebates getting a billion dollars, right? You look at Honey, wow, right? You look at Retail Me Not. I mean, yeah. I mean, I forget the original name of Retail Me Not, but I remember that affiliate. I mean, three guys in Australia, 
And you know, yeah. it was way a, back it was, when. Yeah, it, and it was Memorial Day weekend, right? Like they went on Friday. They were one business model. They went away for three days, and they came back as a coupon affiliate. And then yeah. the next thing, and and made that pivot. And then the next thing you know, like literally three years later, man, those guys are getting acquired for a couple hundred million bucks. And yeah. and there's great stories out there. I mean, look at what Sean and Missy did with the affiliate summit, right? I mean. I mean, I met Sean. He was running Club Mom, right? Yeah, um, I was just going to say that from Club Mom and, to the the premier uh, conference. Yeah, and Missy, I love her. She was blonde, right? Like, like, <laughs> which, and I mean, I love her. I, like, she's the best. But like, I mean, I, I it was just like, I, I went to the first affiliate summit. It was at Baruch College in New York City. Yep. I mean, I yeah. think we we're sitting in a room with like, I don't know, 140 people on 23rd Street, yep. right? And it, but I think that's such a great example of, of entrepreneurs really digging in, finding their value, finding their niche, creating a, an audience and catering to that audience, delivering value, making the appropriate pivots and, and finding a way to win. And I just, I, that's what I love about the affiliate business. And oh, by the way, it's really effective. I mean, every year, I remember when I was in the industry, every year, some report would come out about the death of the affiliate industry, right? I mean, you know, I oh, mean, the, yeah. the death of it. Still I'm happens. sure it does, right? And you still have these knuckleheads who think it's a bunch of guys working in their garage. And it's just like, like listen, man, this thing outpaces the growth of e-commerce consistently. I was just, if e-commerce grew 10%, the affiliates grew 15. It outpaced the growth of e-commerce. And I haven't been in the industry in five years, right? So I don't, you know. All I know is when I was there, that's what I saw, right? And it's just like, it's just like people say email's dead. Email's not dead. It's just not sexy, right? So, um, so, yeah, so yeah. The, just the, the, the resiliency of the market, the resiliency of the people in the market. I mean, you can tell I'm passionate about it. I haven't been in that business in four to five years. Yeah, yeah. Great people there. And oh, by the way, when they do good, other people benefit. Like, I don't know any of these people who have done good that I couldn't name 10 other people that did good because of them or drafted off of that. So that's amazing. Yeah. You know, and I had a mentor that, um, you know, observing what we did in the space and the experiences I had, you know, made an observation of like that channel it allows you to help so many people. Like you're not just keeping yourself employed. I remember the recession and with, or the dot-com bubble and, and that subsequent recession, you know, you can see people keep their jobs because of what we were doing. And that was, that was really special and unique uh, yeah. to that channel. Now on the advertiser side, just cause I want to close the loop on that. The frustrating part, like, so obviously in eBay, I saw it on an, on an advertiser side as well. And certainly a GSI, right? I mean, we had, 80 clients sitting on our cart. Yeah. Um, two insights there. One, when, when, when we were part of GSI, for the first time, I actually got to see what happened with the traffic that was affiliate network or affiliate referred, right? And because all you ever see, right, is conversions. You don't see, mm -hmm. you don't see the non-conversions. And you typically don't see the details around, well, what did that look like? And I was always amazed at the number of, first-time customers that were coming in through the affiliate channel. But even more than that, it was the customers that hadn't bought in 18 months and they were getting reactivated. And 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 those are places where you, the affiliates had a tremendous amount of value. 
um, that I don't know that they get compensated for, or that conversation doesn't take place. And then on, on the advertiser side, I was, I would always get frustrated when they would budget affiliate spend. And I'm like, why is this budgeted? I mean, it's a cost to sale, right? It's like, it's like having commissioned salespeople and capping the comp plan. I mean, they're hundred percent commission for the most part. Like, why are we capping the comp plan? If they crush it, yeah. they crush it. And if you've got your variable cost of sale worked out and you understand your margin, then then why do you have a budget? I understand you have to have a budget to forecast, but at the same time, you know, for every 15 cents you spend, you should be driving a dollar. Do you think that is a function of the affiliate program residing in marketing versus sales? Or do you think it's the finance team, the CFO, uh, having more leverage and wanting to make it? uh, I've always had an idea that, uh, and when I worked with CFOs, when I was at the advertiser, uh, they always strive to get something as simple and easy as they can in the forecasting and the signing of budget. That's a definitive budget that you can use um, was an easy way to do that. So do, do you, do any of those two explain that sort of friction and that that decision to limit the budget? I think I think it's just organizationally like how that leader came up and and, and the organizational structure. Because for every one of those folks that are operating that way, you've got somebody on the other side of the fence that is just like open open check, mm-hmm. right? Like, hey, if you drive, like, I'm, I'm willing I'm yeah, willing yeah, to spend yeah. 15 cents for every dollar in, in gross merchandise sales that I get, um, and I'm good with that. Now look. If you don't understand your margins, then you're going to have problems with that. If you don't have a good couponing or promotional strategy, you know, you, I mean, you've got to have it buttoned up because you know as well as I do, you turn a couple of these folks loose on a good promo, they're going to blow the doors out of it, right? Oh, and, yeah. and so you got to be smart about what you're doing. And 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 I just think because it's performance based, sometimes that level of thinking doesn't go into that channel on the advertiser side, right? Because nobody's writing a check for 500 grand up front or making a commitment on an ad spend, yeah. you know, for mm-hmm. an IO for $150,000 for the quarter. Um, you know, it's, it's an easy entry point, right? For most, it's not like there's a lot of barrier yeah. to entry. So I don't know if the thinking sometimes goes into that. And that's where the affiliate can do a better job, right? As affiliates better understand their metrics, you know, you can have those conversations. And I think like, once you get to be in a merchant's program's top 10, you should be sitting down with them on, a, on at least a quarterly basis for a QBR because you're driving. Yeah. You talked yeah. about that earlier. Yeah. And when we talked, yeah. Tell us what, like, tell me more about that. Again, it's dated information, but there were, there were some, definitely some large affiliates that were in the mix when I was in the industry. Right. Um, and I was always amazed that they weren't having QBRs with the advertisers because you know what? If, if, if you're doing $50 million a year online sales and I'm a publisher and I'm driving 10% of that or 5% of that, and you back out the direct nav and all of that stuff, like I'm a significant partner for you. So why, why are we not doing a QBR, <laughs> right? Like why are we not having that conversation? Because I could be a better I was liking it to this. If you hired a hundred salespeople, commission-based salespeople, and you just gave them some collateral and you never trained them and you sent them out and said, go sell stuff. And then you brought them back a quarter later and you said, well, why didn't you sell anything? Like that's on you, right? You didn't educate your sales force. So, yeah, so yeah. but then you'd have some folks that figure it out and they're going to start crushing it. 
So why aren't you bringing those folks in and having the conversation with them around, hey, we're driving too much of this skew. We need to focus on that. I can help you drive these skews or, hey, you know, good, good inventory turn, like a good retailer or a good merchant, they're going to turn their, their average skew six times a year. And the cost of not turning that, it means it's sitting in a warehouse and you're just paying storage fees, right? So, so why wouldn't you engage your, your, your sales channel, your affiliate channel, to pick the inventory turn up on those SKUs that are moving twice a year? Because your cost to hold that is expensive. So have those strategic yeah. conversations. And I just, I saw it happening sometimes, but I didn't see it happen enough. And, and I feel like that's a great opportunity for for, for networks and publishers. Do you think that's uh, like the onus is on the publisher or do you think the problem could be, in my experience, the affiliate manager is usually in their first or second step yeah. out of college or or just in their career in general. And, and I, I can't imagine if I didn't have uh, mm-hmm. Christine, uh, yourself, uh, mm-hmm. Kathy McCall, uh, some of these other people around me to really push me, I would never have thought to go to uh, the merchandiser and inventory controller and find out what things are costing them, you know, the most to keep on hand and then, then develop a, a promotion, work with certain affiliates sure. to get moving. Do you think it's a combination yeah, of both? I think or? it's all of the above, right? Cause that's a, you're right. You got, you got an affiliate manager who, you know, this might be their second job out of college. They might, you know, it just, it, it, you're, the budgets get big when you when when you're doing well, but the reality of it is like there's no fixed cost on that, right? And um, yeah, but those are the conversations that need to take place because that's how you that's how you turn yeah. the, you know that's how you turn turn the knob and um, and that's my biggest advice is like understand your value as a publisher, like understand your audience that you've curated. And understand your value because the minute you understand yeah. your value, you're having a much better conversation um, with the advertiser. Yeah, and you, we talked about in our prep call was uh, you know affiliates need to understand their value and setting their economics. And what did what do you mean by setting their economics? Well, it's it's customizable. It's 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 look. Not all products are created equal, right? Not all margins are created equal, and yeah. not all sales have the same level level of desirability, right? Like. I'll give you a perfect example. In my business today, many of my clients sell through Amazon, right? Everybody, right? I mean, you can't ignore it. You know, so they're either doing seller fulfilled prime. So let's say they're using us and they're doing seller fulfilled prime, right? And then they've got their direct channel and then they've got other channels. And and it's making a decision around like, okay, if I only have a hundred units, am I using this FIFO type of, of distribution where, you know, first in, first out? Or do I need to prioritize that? Because if I start, if I can't fulfill Amazon Seller Fulfilled Prime, I might lose my badge. And if I lose my badge, that, yeah. that's you know, that's that's disastrous for me. So when I say when I say set your economics or understand your economics, right, is is having that conversation. Like, look, those sales are not created equal, right? And and that inventory is not equal. So. So having the flexibility, right, or understanding your capabilities as a publisher so that you can set different economics for different SKUs or, or different categories and have the willingness to do that. And on the advertiser side, it's just as important for them, right? Not all sales are created equal, right? Um, you know, sales from customers that have never bought before are worth 
more than those who have. Sales that come from a customer that bought from you 18 months ago and have gone dark have different values. SKUs that are sitting in your warehouse and turning twice a year have better value than something you're flipping you know, nonstop. So having the flexibility yeah. and, and the technology exists to do it. And, 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 and the comp- it doesn't need to be as complex. So, but that's just a conversation that's better than I'm just going to give you 5% flat on everything. That's a, that's a lazy, that's a lazy way out. Totally agree. Totally agree. That that's awesome. Now we've kind of touched on this concept of what we sort of were struggling with 15, 20 years ago of certain advertisers and people outside of the affiliate channel, not understanding the value of it. Um, I, I meet with prospects, you know, every, every week, sometimes daily, uh, advertisers who, uh, either are actively looking or, uh, we're actively wanting to show them what the affiliate channel has to offer. And they, there is a portion that sees no value in it. Why do you think with all the advantages and, uh, uh, you know, value that you and I have been mm-hmm. talking about and, and you, you really showcased. Why do you think there's still a struggle to understand that this isn't, uh, you know, Billy Bob in his pajamas uh, uh, sniping your cart right. at the end? Well, yeah, well, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's a great question. I wish I had a clean, easy answer for you. I don't, right? I mean, it could be Billy Bob in his pajamas. Who cares, right? It's the latter part of that that's the problematic yeah, part. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm surprised the conversation still takes place. I mean, the industry's been around now, let's just call it 20 years, right? I mean, certainly there was some stuff before 2000, yeah. but let's just say mainstream Definitely. for 20 years. Like, I don't know why we're still having that conversation. I mean, you know, my daughter took a marketing, my daughter is in college, she had a marketing class and she called me up because the marketing class in their book, they they referred to a study that we commissioned when I was at Rakuten on affiliates. Like it's, it's not like it's not being taught oh, wow. in marketing, you know, in colleges. It's not like it's not one of the five must pull levers in, 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 yeah. a, in a digital strategy. Um, you know, I think... And I wish I had a really intelligent answer for you, Jamie. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I don't, and I don't, I don't know and I don't understand. But I, what I do know is this. There always has to be advocates in the industry, right? There always has to be advocates in the industry that are singing or, or shouting from the mountaintop and advocating for that, right? I mean, in email, you got spam house, right? And you got like your watchdog groups, right? And in, in display, you've got watchdog groups, I just don't know who that, I mean, I don't know who that is in the affiliate space right now. I know the, I know the individuals, right? We all know the individuals. Um, but like, where's, where's that voice? Um, and I don't know. I mean, certainly people like you, right. And, and folks like you, but like, who, where's, where's that voice? And I don't know. And it's not a criticism. It's just, um, I just don't see the platform for that. Yeah. I think in the last couple of years, the PMA, uh, you know, has, has started to really coalesce, but I think there's still a lot of work to do, but yeah, thank you for answering that. Now, uh, I'm excited for this question because I loved your answer when we talked where to go. That's where you're at now. Uh, Tell us about the company and really tell us about how that fits in with, you know, purpose and, and your passion. 
I'm going to tell you that in a minute, but before we get to it, I'm going to tell you one of my favorite affiliate stories. Okay. So please do. I'll never I remember it like it was <laughs> yesterday. So we had sold LinkShare. This is like 2005 and we had sold LinkShare and we had a good exit. And, um, and I had moved into the president's job at that point and I was feeling pretty good about myself. And, you know, you and the fine folks at Coldwater <laughs> Creek had invited us to come out to, um, to, uh, to, to the golf tournament. Right. And, um, and I was yeah. feeling pretty good. And you just, you know, look, I, we didn't do so well at LinkShare exit that I had private jet. So I still had to fly into Spokane, rent a car and drive, you know, down interstate 90, I think it was, um, to get on down to Coeur d'Alene. And then you bang yeah. a left. Uh, 90, right? 95. And you bang a yeah. left at Coeur d'Alene and you start heading to Canada. And, um, and then you run into Sand yep. Point. So I was feeling pretty good about myself. And um, so I landed in Spokane, which you got to connect to Seattle. And um, so I'd rented this RX-10, right? I think it was RX-10. It was a hot car. It had the suicide doors that popped up. And I roll in, I roll in, and there's some casinos there in that greater Sandpoint area. Uh, this, so, is, this story is coming back so, to me. And, and Cheryl hose with me. And Cheryl is uh, Cheryl was our is one of the co-founders of LinkShare, and, and and Cheryl was with me. So we pull up, we pull up in front of the casino, and um, suicide doors pop up, right? And and we step out. And uh, I'd only had the car maybe in my possession about forty five minutes at this time, maybe an hour. And um, I didn't didn't realize that I had not left it in park. It was in drive still. So I get out of the car. Cheryl gets out of the car. And the car starts rolling and it's rolling towards the big <laughs> glass sliding doors that are the entrance to this casino. And, and, and this thing is going and it is getting clo- it's closer and closer. And I, I'm trying to get in it and the suicide doors banging me on the head and people are freaking out because you've got this car <laughs> that looks like a bird, right? Like that's coming. And people yeah. in the casino are looking out because this car is coming. And literally I, I jump in there and I'm just fumbling around that. And Jamie, man, I stopped that car probably about a foot before it went into the windows, the full Florida glass windows into the whatever casino in Greater Sandpoints book. I don't know where we were, but but this 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 place it was going insane. And I, I for me it's a funny story because it was it was it was mortifying and. And I realized oh, I hey, you're not a big shot, right? It was a very humbling experience because yeah. I was planning on walking in there like a scene from Dumb and Dumber, right? With the fur coat and fanning out yeah. the dog, right? Instead, instead, yeah. you know, we, we roll up in there and, and, and it's just like, holy crap. And I'm just mortified. Got back in that car, man. Suicide doors went out, backed up out of there. No more casino. Um, but, uh, but I knew you didn't, <laughs> you didn't go no. in. Um, it was mortifying. I was like, Cheryl, Cheryl, get in the car. Just, just get in the car. We, we, we just almost, we almost like, we almost drove into the casino, like hangover style. So I tell you that story, Jamie, because I've told you that oh, before. Man. And, and, and Chris and Christine like reminds me of it like once a year. So, um, she reminds me of it. Anyway, um, where to go? Really exciting. So, so where to go? Um, there, so when you think about where to go, um, think a little, think about Uber or think about Airbnb, right? Uber putting together people who need rides with people who are certified and have cars through technology, right? Or Airbnb, people who, who want to stay and then people who are hosted and connected through technology. We just do the same thing, Jamie, 
for merchants who have products to sell and warehouses who have capability and, and space and are certified and have a distributed footprint. Um, we put those together through our technology. So there's really three things that we do. One, we have a technology that connects to our clients' sales channels. So whether it's their online or their customer service or their sales reps, whatever their sales channels are, we connect to that. And, and we connect that technology into warehouse management systems, uh, which connects to their supply chain. So we do that from a technology standpoint. Um, the second thing we do is we forward stage, we use our technology to analyze their SKUs and analyze their shipping and look at two years of history and come up with a strategic plan and say, okay, based on who you've shipped to and your markets and your promotional schedule, we should forward stage these SKUs into these geographic locations so that you can offer your customers one or second day ground delivery. So if you think about that small to mid-sized merchant who's got a warehouse next to their corporate office and they're based mm -hmm. in Reno or Westchester, New York, you know, they can do overnight, you know, within maybe 400 miles. But if you're in California, you're staring down six days or air. And that's unacceptable in today's market. So we forward stage it so they can ship overnight or ground to any of their clients, uh, any of their customers. So I like to say we prime enable what they do, uh, all of their goods. And then the third thing we do is it's an on-demand model. So you're not tying your money up in the leases or long-term contracts. Literally, it is an on-demand model. So if I have a client who ships 50 packages today, then that's what they pay for. If they have a downturn in their business through seasonality or other factors and they ship two, they pay for two, but they're not paying warehouse costs. They're not paying for employees. It's all baked in. It's a pay-as-you-go on-demand model. And, and it gives small to mid-sized merchants an opportunity to compete globally with the same infrastructure that a Target or a Home Depot or a Walmart's going to have. Because if you're a small to mid-sized guy, you just don't have that infrastructure and nor should you spend your capital to invest in that. Um, you should spend your money on your inventory and your promotion. Why do you want to tie it up in warehouses? Um, and our model allows you to do that. And what I get excited about from a purpose standpoint is, look, when I was at LinkShare, I saw small to mid-sized merchants and affiliates build amazing businesses. And we gave them a platform to compete and win. And when we were at eBay, you know, I like to say that we, we, we en en enabled merchants to sell globally, right? And a platform where they could compete and win regardless of size. And I think digitally from a sales standpoint, the playing field's pretty level. Right? Big or small, mm -hmm. they can all compete with affiliate. They can all compete in social search. They can compete on search. They can compete on all these channels. They might have different budgets, but they have access. And I would tell you the playing field's level. But when it came to supply chain, not level. Enterprise, scale, yeah. size has, a, has a, a competitive advantage that you just don't have as a small and mid-sized merchant. And we enable that. And for me, that was the calling card for this last act of my career to do something to level that playing field and allow those clients to compete and win. And that's what I get up every day and get excited about. And, uh, and I couldn't be more thrilled with what we're doing. You see that thread through uh, through your career, you know, as an outside person. Now that you say that, and hearing you talk about the other places of, of you helping other people be successful, uh, and that's man, that's really cool to see. 
Well, it's, it's, it's fun. Right. And, and if you can help other people be successful, you know, you might be successful along the way too. And, and the cool thing about it is yeah, other people get successful. You've got like good, successful other people around your network that you're friends with. Right. So, so, so you're not like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. That's you're not helpful. like Smithers, right. On, on, on the Simpsons, right. Like one rich guy, right. And, but no, no friends. Um, uh, it's just, it, you know, it's, it's, um, it started, you know, candidly when I was a young rep and, you know, I had, ran, you know, FedEx, I had random house and that was exciting to pay the bills, but like, I would rather tell you stories about the guy that made the margarita mix or, you know, the client I had that, that, I mean, I could tell you tons of stories and spend the next three hours telling you about some of the crazy clients I had, but, you know, just amazing entrepreneurs and, 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 and giving them a platform to compete and win. Cause I think, look, if we do, I just don't think Jamie, I'll, I'll end with this, right? I don't think we live in a world where it's winner takes all. I think we live in a world where it takes all to win. And if you subscribe to that mm. ladder theory, then you're going to get energized and motivated about businesses that enable that. Um, and that's where I am. And that's what we're doing. Wow. It's not winner takes all. It's It takes all that's right. to win. That's <laughs> That's outstanding. Uh, Steve, if anyone uh, wants to find more uh, out about where mm-hmm. to go, uh, where do they go? Well, it's pretty simple, right? They, they go to where to, <laughs> it's where to go, W-A-R-E, the number two, go.com. And you can learn about where to go. Uh, for my friends for my friends out there uh, and, and, and folks that I've lost contact with or maintain contact with, always happy to connect with you on LinkedIn or, or Twitter. I'm SR Denton on Twitter. Uh, I'm on a Facebook. I've recently moved to the gram. I'm taking, I'm taking my game to the gram. I figured it was time, Jamie. I'm, 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 yeah, I just, it's, uh, but, uh, yeah, I just, I was like, Oh my God, I can't manage all of these platforms. And I actually toy, I hired a firm (laughs) to do some of the business stuff for me. And I was just like, they're so tone deaf, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I, Jamie, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. It's if, if, if anyone listens to it and learn one thing, to connect to folks from the affiliate space, whether on the advertiser side or the publisher side, it's, it's an amazing industry and anything I can do to help or give back or help one person would be great. And, and, um, and I'm hoping, I am hoping that, you know, I know that this will pass and we will all get out again and, and see each other in person. And I hope that I get an opportunity. I know I'll see you, but I, I, I hope I get an opportunity to connect with some, some folks that I haven't seen in a long time as well. So uh, thanks for the platform and thanks for the opportunity to chat with you and your audience. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, on behalf of all those who've uh, either worked with you or uh, for you uh, and have learned from you, you know, we, we thank you. It's been, you've been a tremendous help to so many uh, in, in this industry. And, and yeah, thank you for coming on today. This has been the, uh, the best, most fun hour and 10 minutes uh, I've had at work this week. So I uh, I definitely appreciate uh, your time. It's been really great to reconnect. Uh, and hopefully we get to see each other soon. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining me today. Thank you, Jamie. I appreciate you, buddy. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I sure enjoyed having it and glad I was able to bring it to you. We do have a affiliate marketing strategies to survive and thrive ebook available at jebcommerce.com slash strategies. So please check that out. Uh, if you are looking for help, trying to find your way to navigate your affiliate channel uh, through our current crazy times. Um, and if you like this podcast, please share it with a friend. And if you'd like to be a guest or you know someone I should be talking to, uh, please email me at jamie at jebcommerce.com. So a huge thank you to Steve Denton for joining me today. I look forward to every conversation I have. And this is the first one we've been able to uh, record and share. Uh, and I think it was a great one. I hope you uh, learned a lot and took a couple bullet points from our conversation. And definitely, if you are in the business and need uh, a service like where to go, uh, please check that out too.